Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's safety talk. Hi everyone, it's Debbie. I'm so excited to have everyone here listening to us. And I'm even more excited, not about COVID, but the fact that we can get our fingers and hands on someone who is really an expert in talking about this, even though as much as none of us really want to talk about it. Today, I'm here to present Dr. Kristen Dickerson. She's a statewide health, wellness, and special program manager at OCOSH Ohio BWC. Let me tell you, this bio is impressive, by the way. Kristen Dickerson is the statewide manager for health, wellness, and special programs for Ohio BWC. She has worked in both the private and public sector at all levels of the government and within hospitals. She's obtained a bachelor's in microbiology with a MPH and PhD in epidemiology, as well as being a registered nurse and certified lab technician. In addition to working with bio warfare in the army and serving in public health service, she has been a regional infectious disease epidemiologist, infection preventist, quality improvement coordinator for the prison system in Ohio, and a program administrator for population health programs, in addition to being a visiting professor and subject matter expert for the Chamberlain School of Nursing. With that, welcome Dr. Dickerson. Hello, everyone. So today we are going to be going over some, some of the virus basics, and we're going to go over transmission as well as contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, uh, some source control, and uh, mask efficacy. So a little bit about viruses, because I think if we go over viruses, it might help you understand the disease COVID a little better. Viruses are non-living particles. This means that they cannot replicate on their own. They lack a lot of cellular machinery that eukaryotic cells, such as bacteria and multicellular organisms like humans, have. They are submicroscopic. These little diseases, they actually only consist of DNA or RNA. They usually do not have both. And then uh, proteins that kind of coat them and keep that DNA or RNA together. Because they are so simplistic, they can mutate frequently and they can do this rapidly. So when we talk about, about mutations, they can be non-competitive. And what this means is that something happens when a virus, when a virus replicates within a host cell, if something happens to the cellular uh, DNA or RNA of that virus and it makes it non-competitive. That means it kind of makes it less, less virulent, it can't infect uh, people, it can't infect cells, and because of this, it kind of renders itself no longer infective to humans. Mutations can also help viruses evade the immune system. We see this a lot with HIV. Mutations can also make viruses resistant to antiviral drugs. Antibiotics are only used for bacteria, and they are specific for bacteria. When we talk about antiviral, antiviral drugs that are, that are specific for viruses, a lot of times these drugs, because viruses mutate so frequently, these drugs don't necessarily cure you. Just like with Tamiflu, you have to take it within three days of getting the virus. It usually just stops you from having symptoms as long and it lessens the severity. 
because viruses mutate so frequently, this really impacts vaccines. This is why in the, with, the annual, with the annual flu vaccine, we have to constantly get a new, flu va- a new flu vaccine because there's mutations that have occurred in the virus and we have to be immunized against the new viruses that are out there. There's research out there. I've seen both sides of the tail saying that uh, COVID-19 may have mutated and become more virulent, meaning that it'll infect more people. Or also there has been research that says that it may infect more people, but the severity of the disease may have changed. The problem is, is these studies are so new that only one or two of the studies have been done. And in order for us to, in order for us in science to accept something, we have to have multiple case studies and multiple studies done proving that the virus is vac- the virus is mutated or not. SARS-CoV-2 is what is causing the current COVID-19 pandemic. It is a coronavirus. We actually saw coronaviruses in 2004 and then again in 2011 and 12 with both SARS, outbreaks of SARS, and then outbreaks of MERS. SARS, the first SARS, has completely gone away and we don't see it any longer. There are still people that are getting infected with MERS. It never hit the United States, which is good because the mortality rate for MERS is 33%, which is much higher than we see with um, corona. This pandemic started like most pandemics. It Usually the disease is found, just like with the flu, coronavirus is the same. The disease is found in an animal host. Somehow humans come in contact with those animals, and then the animal gives the human the disease. And then when we see human-to-human transmission, and then we see communities start to get sick, then the pandemic or the outbreak kind of spread. Coronaviruses were actually first found in 1960, so they have been around for a while. So some of the signs and symptoms of corona, which change frequently, the CDC is updating them. Fever and cough are definitely the two most common things that we see and a sore throat. Fatigue, shortness of breath. It usually is worse in adults or those with uh, immunocompromised systems. 15% of people are known to show severe infection. So this means that These people need hospitalized. These people have to be put on ventilators. And what they're seeing is if you do get hospitalized with this virus and you do get put on a ventilator, you're on a ventilator for not just a day or two, but it ends up being weeks or months. And there's a lot of therapy and rehab for those patients trying to come back to where they were before. So this is the timeline of SARS-CoV-2, which is what causes COVID. The incubation period for this virus is 2 to 14 days. So that means that if you are infected from somebody, you could start showing symptoms as early as two days after or as late as two weeks after. So this is why we quarantine people that have been exposed, that we think have been exposed for 14 days. They have been able to find out that most symptomatic transmission, so by this I mean if somebody's coughing or sneezing and you're around that person, most symptomatic transmission occurs when the virus reaches the back of the throat, which is about five days after infection. But they can be infectious two days prior to their symptoms starting. So this is why when health departments are doing contact tracing, they ask the individual with a positive COVID test, when did your symptoms start? And then they go back two days prior and everybody that they've come in contact with is their contacts. 
we have seen asymptomatic transmission with this. And with asymptomatic transmission, it just means that you've been exposed to it, but you don't have any symptoms, but you can still transmit the disease to others. This is why we're doing the masks and the source control, because people are transmitting the disease before they are showing symptoms or they're not ever showing symptoms and they are still able to transmit the disease. We're all kind of familiar with flu. So this is a comparison between COVID and the flu, the annual flu. I'm not talking about the pandemic, the Spanish influenza of 1918. This is just the annual flu. So with COVID, there is a much higher mortality rate. At the beginning, it was 5%. I think the most current estimates are 3.7%, which means like three and a half or five people out of 100 are dying. This is way higher than the annual flu. Annual flu uh, mortality rates are 0.01%. So five to 0.01%, that's, that's a lot higher. Those that are more at risk are people that are older, or those that are immunocompromised, those that have heart or lung diseases. And they are starting to see that the more you're exposed to the virus, the worse your symptoms are going to be. So if you were, if you were exposed to somebody that was asymptomatic and you develop symptoms, they're not going to be as bad as if somebody that had COVID coughed right in your face. Those that are most at, most at risk for infection are healthcare workers. Even though they have the PPE, PPE is not fail is not fail safe. There are accidents that happen. Things can get past face shields and they can get past masks. High area areas of infection. So you'll see this on Governor DeWine's. He puts one out every day. It's a, it's it's the United States and it shows where there's higher rate of infection. And so he's asking you to quarantine. And that's just because your chances of getting COVID if you go to those areas are higher just because there's more infection. This is why we've started the mask requirement everywhere because we're trying to stop people from transmitting and it really lowers risk for infection because of source control, which we'll talk about a little later. This is a gross picture, but this is what it looks like when somebody sneezes or coughs. All those droplets come out of your mouth. Transmission of this virus is mostly through droplets. That means there's droplets coming through your respiratory system. So they're coming out of your nose, they're coming out of your mouth, uh, they come out when you breathe, you talk, you sing. They actually say singing is one of the worst things that you can do because you spray more and further because you're using more lung muscles and stomach muscles to get out volume. That's why kids and choirs have been kind of put even further distance. I think they're recommended to stand 20 feet apart instead of just six. When we're talking about droplet transmission, there's a chance that these droplets can become airborne. And how that occurs is the droplets break down once they leave the respiratory system. So if they break down and they become small enough, they then get suspended in the air. Now this happens with tuberculosis and it is airborne. And this also happens with COVID sometimes where the particles, if they're given a chance to break down, they do break down and become suspended in the air. So that means even if the person coughed and left the area, some of those particles could still be suspended the air, in the air and you could walk through them. This is why a lot of the uh, races, like marathons and stuff, have been canceled. And at the beginning of COVID, there was some thought that there's contact transmission, but the virus is not really viable on surfaces for extended periods of time. I know copper, it can only live on there for an hour. Plastic, I think it can live on there for 24 hours. 
So it doesn't really stay on surfaces much and everybody's doing a great job at trying to clean all surfaces. So the chance for contact transmission has really reduced as the pandemic's gone on. The interventions that we're doing right now are all just to reduce transmission. This includes social distancing, which is six feet or more, and then also source control. So that's what we're doing when we're wearing a face covering or a mask of any kind. Source control reduces the amount of the virus spread to others. So if everybody is wearing a mask and you're sick or you're asymptomatic, it stops all those particles from coming out of your mouth and then breaking down and becoming airborne or then even um, spreading on to somebody else. Source control is very effective. There's actually two people that got sick in a factory and everybody was required to wear masks and they tested, this isn't in Ohio, this was a study done somewhere else, and then in the factory they did, they tested everybody that had been in close contact with these individuals and nobody tested positive because those individ the individuals that were sick were wearing masks, so it stopped them from transmitting the illness. Definitely proper hand washing is one of the most important things that we can do because while we're still concerned with COVID, we are starting to get into flu season, so that just makes things even more concerning. You're going to need to use soap and water. You need to use warm water, not hot water. When you use hot water, you can actually dry your skin out, which causes micro cracks in your skin, and all these germs, bacteria, viruses can enter these micro cracks, so it's better just to use warm water. 20 seconds at least, that's singing happy birthday twice. Hand sanitizer works. It's not as effective as hand washing is. With both hand washing and using hand sanitizer, friction is what ends up breaking down the bacteria and the viruses that are on your skin. So really rubbing and scrubbing breaks down and it degrades everything on your hand. We've also started to do in increased surf surface cleaning. So all those high touch areas like your phone, your computer, your any surface that you're coming in contact with a lot or others are coming in contact with a lot, they just need to be frequently cleaned. You may hear this and it's PUI. I'm just going to go over two definitions real quick. It's called a PUI and asymptomatic transmission. So a PUI is a person under investigation and they may be transferred at any time from being under investigation to a positive case. Uh, when we talk about infectious diseases, we don't call them patients, they become a case because they have to be, be investigated. So a person under investigation is somebody that has been tested for COVID and the results not back and we think they might have it, or it's been somebody that has a very good chance of being exposed to it. So these are personal contacts of people that are being tested. When we talk about asymptomatic, again, this means that they have no symptoms and they can transmit the disease. They still don't know how much asymptomatic transmission is occurring. That's why we need to educate people as much as possible to use cough etiquette and wear masks and wash your hands. We're gonna go over mask efficacy. And there's two slides because there's two things that we need to think of. We need to think of how are masks protecting us and how do masks protect other people? So when we talk about N95 respirators and the, and the elastomeric respirators that you see the nurses wearing, these are to protect the wearer. Most of these respirators are masks. They have valves on them. 
And those valves actually end up putting out particles. And so that's why if they're wearing these masks with valves, they also have a face shield to stop any of their particles from coming out onto people. When we're talking about surgical masks, they do protect the wearer to some extent. I think they stop 60% of the particles from entering the person's respiratory system, but they're actually used to protect the people around them. So when surgical masks were made, so when a doctor's doing surgery, they're not breathing on the patient and they're not giving the patient their germs. So that's actually the reason for surgical masks. Face coverings have been found also to protect the wearer to some extent. And there are some face coverings, especially the ones with the three layers or there's a filter insert that protect the wearer as much as a surgical mask does. And there are a lot of studies that show that if you're wearing a mask and you're exposed, chances are that you're not going to have the disease as severe as if you weren't wearing a mask to begin with. We also need to think about masks as far as how it protects other people from, from our germs. When we're talking about N95, it doesn't really help with source control. For one thing, you have to be fitted for it. But then on top of that, there's not a lot of studies that have actually looked at N95 and determined how it helps, particularly with source control. Now, you are wearing uh, something over your mouth, so it is stopping a lot of those germs from coming out, so it, it does do that. Surgical masks and face coverings really do stop transmission. When the particles are large, because the virus is in water droplets from your nose or from your mouth, they're large, and they end up hitting that face covering and getting stopped and stuck on that face covering. I know that's kind of gross. That's why we need to wash them if we can they get stopped before they can go out further and then get into the smaller particles and become airborne and start infecting other people. You guys might have seen it. It was probably about two months ago, and it wasn't in Ohio, I don't think. But um, there was actually two hairdressers tested positive for COVID. Within two days, they saw 140 people. And those 140 people were considered close contacts because they were within less than six feet and they um, saw these people for longer than 15 minutes. Both the hairdressers had on face shields and face masks and none of those contacts developed symptoms or became sick. So that just shows you how well face coverings of any kind work at stopping disease transmission. We're going to go into contact tracing now. This is what the health departments are doing, and they're starting to hire more contact tracers. This is when we try to track down who might have it, who might have caught it from people within the community. We actually do contact tracing anytime there is a case of an infectious disease that is reported. So this actually includes chickenpox, measles, because we've had multiple measles outbreaks in Ohio, even your STDs. We have to do contact tracing with any of these. And that's just to make sure that anybody that's been exposed receives the appropriate care and education to stop them from transmitting it to other people. Contact tracing is different for every disease because with sexually transmitted diseases, you're just looking at that particular type of contact. Now, if you're considering measles, it's another respiratory disease. So you're looking at, okay, who did they come in contact with for 15 minutes or longer and less than six feet. Contact tracing always starts with interviewing the positive case. And a lot of times the health departments are as specific as possible. And so they'll name specific dates 
in days? What did you do in the AM? What did you do in the PM? Just to make sure that they have a comprehensive list of everybody that that person has come in contact with. When we're talking about uh, tracing specifically for COVID, they look at every, they ask the positive case when they develop symptoms, and then they go 48 hours back from the development of symptoms, not the positive test, but from when that person first started to feel sick, they go 48 hours back and then they ask them who they were in contact with. They also ask them, like, what type of activities did you do? Were you at any family gatherings? Have you left the state? These are all questions that they ask right now. And they're always asking, some states are 10 minutes or less, and but Ohio, for the most part, and every health department that I've talked to or come in contact with, it's 15 minutes or less. So that close contact is if they were within six feet or uh, 15 minutes or more. The purpose of contact tracing is just to identify and assess all those contacts. Once they have a list of the contact of the primary contacts, the health department calls those contacts and asks them if they're sick, if they have symptoms, they ask where they work, and they record all this information and they will track these individuals for 14 days. Because they're a primary exposure, they will also put them into quarantine and they'll be quarantined at their house. And if they develop symptoms, they will transfer from being a contact to a, a positive case. And then they'll start the contact tracing with this contact that then became positive. They give them guidance too, as far as if they share a house with people, one of the things is, is if you're a primary exposure and you live in a house with others, try to have your own bathroom. If you're in a common area, wear a mask. And that's just so the rest of your family doesn't get sick until they know that you're not sick. It's uh, contact tracing is a three-step process. It involves contact identification. So that's when that positive case comes in. Ohio has a disease reporting system that is electronic. So all infectious diseases from any lab in Ohio is reported into the system. Sometimes it takes a while and because most of it is behind the scenes and the labs all have, have algorithms that if there are positive cases of measles or chlamydia or COVID, they automatically get reported. They do not get report, they get reported to the positive cases, primary residence. So if there is somebody in prison and their primary residence is in their in Noble County and their primary residence is Muskingum County, they will actually get reported back to Muskingum County. Um, and this is just because that's where that's what that's where their primary residence is listed. Um, once they identify these positive cases, they ask, they ask about contacts and activities. They make lists of the contacts, um, and then they follow up with contacts and the positive case just to educate them about isolation and quarantine and uh, send out a packet of information as well as quarantine orders or isolation orders. Uh, like I said, all positive cases are reported to the health department, and right now the health department has 24-hour, has to respond to every positive case of COVID-19 and start contact tracing and interviewing that person within 24 hours. Um, 
this is why they've had to to hire in some extra help and contact tracers are now being hired. Uh, they have to do that inter, inter, initial interview with the positive case. And then from there, they work on determining who um, primary contacts are. And then they record all that information. And then another team takes it and starts to reach out to everybody in the community that might have been exposed. Uh, these are all potential exposures, so they're all put into quarantine. Um, but all these contacts have to be um, interviewed, and the health department has to reach out to them. So if somebody went to a church service and they were sick and there are 150 other people in a room with them, those 150 other people would then be primary contacts and then they would have to be investigated and they would the health department would then be responsible for checking with them for symptoms and we do have an electronic system in ohio that you can sign up for where the health department won't be calling you every day or every other day to ask how you're feeling you can just sign up through email and say i'm not sick i don't have fever um, but that's something that each health department will go over with a positive case and their contacts. Um, education and information is also gone over, like I said before. I think we basically went over this again. When we talk to contacts of the positive case, we also write down contacts of the contacts. So contacts of a positive case are considered primary exposures contacts of primary exposures are considered secondary exposures. The health department writes down this information, but they don't contact the secondary exposures. If the primary exposure flips and then becomes sick or develops symptoms, those secondary exposures will then become primary exposures. The health department already has that information and doesn't have to go get it again. And so then they'll start contacting those secondary exposures and let them know that they're quarantined. Um, people are expected, if you're under quarantine or isolation, that you have to monitor your symptoms daily. And um, the health department will either be contacting you every, every day or every other day, or they will ask if you want to be put on the electronic contact tracing system that ODH has. Okay. So we're going to talk about isolation and quarantine. I've mentioned both before. They are two different populations. When we talk about isolation, uh, we are talking about people that have tested positive for the virus, so they have a positive test. They have symptoms. Most of the time, we haven't had a lot of asymptomatic, but even if they're asymptomatic, they're still put into the isolation. People are put into isolation for 10 days or if their symptoms resolve, 72 hours after their symptoms completely resolve, they can come out of isolation. There are, so there's a lot of times where we have people that are isolated, like a positive case, and then the rest of their family is quarantined in the same house. So you've got people that are isolated and quarantined in the same house. The thing is, is the people that are quarantined, they cannot come out of quarantine early. The only way they can get out of quarantine is if they end up getting sick and moving to isolation. So potentially, we've got somebody that can come out of isolation that had COVID 
they can come out of isolation, but the people that are in the house still have to stay in quarantine. The requirements that we try to get everybody to have for isolation is they have to have a room and a bathroom to themselves, if at all possible. They need to wear masks in a common area and try to reduce um, active, try to reduce interaction with other people in the house as much as possible. There will be extra cleaning that takes place. There will be a lot of education given to these people as well. Quarantine is 14 days from the last contact with a positive case. So if you have a positive case and they go to the hospital, you're put into quarantine and you drop them off at the hospital, you're put into quarantine and then you go pick that positive case up because they came out of the hospital, your 14 days starts over again because that was the last contact when you picked them up after discharge. So just to be aware of that. Um, when we're in isolation and quarantine, uh, individuals should not leave their home and they should not interact with people outside of the home, which is good because we've got DoorDash now and everybody's delivering and they're kind of just leaving food on the doorstep and running away. There are signed orders sent for each and they come from the health department and there are instructions on, on them. Uh, and the health department will call you and release you from quarantine and release you from isolation. And they'll also send letters so those can be shared with employers. There are some times that law enforcement has to get involved in tracking people down because the health department can't get a, in a hold of them. And the health department doesn't know. They will send nurses out to, to check to see if they can talk to these positive cases or their contacts, but sometimes they do have to get law enforcement to help because they're concerned that something's happened. Okay, and I think that is the end of it. Okay, so are there any questions? Yeah, we have a, a lot of questions. Oh, no! Here. Okay, yeah. I'll try to answer all of them. All right, so uh, let's start with, uh, there's a lot of questions around masks. Yeah. So the, the specific questions are, are disposable or cloth masks better? What about face shields? Are those uh, okay to wear? And mm -hmm. then there's a pronounced gaiter, G-A-I-T-E-R, style masks are yep. no better than masks at all. Um, you could address those. Uh, anything that you wear in front of your mouth and your nose to stop your spit and snot for, I can't think of a more scientific term, of coming out and like spraying on other people, it works. You can go, there's a whole bunch of studies that have been done. My favorite experiment is this guy that like sets fire to mannequin faces and he puts a, it's really good. He, it's on Facebook, sorry. He puts like a mask on and the, the fluid does not come out of the mask. But if the mask isn't there, it sets fire to the other mannequin. So honestly, anything on your face stops stuff from coming out. Face shields are good. Face shields actually, so face shields stop stuff from coming out of your mouth, but it's not as good at protecting you because it's not sealed because there is some protection that face coverings offer us from the virus infecting us. So that's the only, the only bad thing about face shields. However, it's a lot easier to understand people. So if you're working with populations that are deaf or hard of hearing, I suggest that you wear the face shield because it does stop but then people can read your mouth. On that same track, how safe are our workers who are wearing masks eight to 12 hours for, for a shift in the hot environment? Um, there are, there are 
it will do nothing to your pulse ox. It will not reduce your uh, your oxygen levels at all. Um, it's uncomfortable, but healthcare workers wear masks all the time. I know that there are specific variances, and you can check with your local health department on the variances because if it is too hot and they're working outside or it, it does get too hot and there's no way for the employer to have like ventilation, there are variances that employers can get for comfort and health and safety of employees. So I would suggest if, if it's a big problem, check with the health department. And I want to um, add in there, Renee, uh, I just talked to the Porch County Health District yesterday, in fact, and asked them some of these questions and they want people to be as safe as possible all the way around. And so they, they get it. And so they're not your enemy. They're not looking to come no. shut you down. So if you have a question, I, I even addressed the issue of our members potentially being afraid to come to the health department to be on the list or get targeted. And they assured me that's not the case. So I know that's anytime there's a governmental agency, there's a fear there. So I just want to say, contact the health department. They're actually, even with the food inspections, they do at restaurants and campgrounds and pools. They're really trying to make it healthy and partner with you on it. They're not looking to shut you down or find you. So you yes. don't have to be afraid of them. No. Uh, feel free to go ahead and reach out to that. Most health departments, that's what they want, is they just want an opportunity to educate you and help you. Because they would much rather know that there are these problems that exist, and they don't want you guys to pass out. They, they do. They really want to work with you and support you. And the next question is... Uh... Were we not working on a vaccine in the past years and how, how close? I know that we don't have a crystal ball. What's, what's the deal with the vaccine? What do we know? So they worked on a vaccine, I think, both with SARS and MERS, but which they could use to, to start. But it took a while to identify at the beginning that this was corona. And then it took a, it took a while to identify how many strands that there, and I still think that the uh, research is trying to determine if there's multiple strands out there or not. It does take a while to get this virus and run testing on it to get um, the, genet the, the genetics on it. So when we talk about viruses, they actually have to enter your cell to replicate. And so what the vaccine does is it's trying to mimic the outer portions of the virus. So then it will be injected into your into your body and then antibodies will recognize that as a foreign a foreign body and it will it will make specific antibodies so then when the virus comes in it will bind to the virus the outside protein particles on that virus and it'll make it so it can't enter your cell that's that's the whole background of that i do know i just saw that i think russia says that they have a vaccine I know that the United States is working on, everybody is working on one. Yeah, I don't know if I would take Russia's vaccine. Everybody is working on a vaccine. They're trying to fast track all of it. I think that they were hoping on seeing something by the end of this year. That's the last that I had read. Good. And then on the uh, the testing, I know that more tests are available now and it's, it's easier for people to get tested. How realistic are the tests that are going to be similar to like a, a pregnancy test or a quick test? rapid test? Mm -hmm. Okay. So just like with every other rapid test, there there's not a lot of false negatives. There's a lot of false positives with those mm -hmm. tests. Because when you talk about uh, the rapid test, because they're rapid, 
which allows us to test a whole bunch of people and get results fast, they're kind of dumbed down. So what that means is it's testing for pieces of a virus, but they it might not necessarily be specific to COVID. When you do the PCR testing, you're testing specific for the RNA for COVID virus. Does that answer the question? I think so. Okay. I I, uh, I hope that answers the question for the, for our members. If you have another question, you can you can put it in there. Uh, we're we're getting close on time. So the last couple of questions, you reviewed some of the symptoms to look for: fever, sore throat, cough, trouble breathing. Are there any other symptoms? Loss of taste, loss of smell are two big ones, and now they just added nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So the list of symptoms keeps growing. If you want to know specifically what it is today, you just go to the CDC website, but the list does keep growing. Great. And then if you are diagnosed as positive and they're doing that contact tracing, would you need to report people if you were wearing a mask? Okay. So that's another thing that the health department actually asks. An example is a restaurant in our area. There was somebody that tested positive for COVID. She worked at the restaurant. She had a mask on. Everybody else there had masks on. So they did contact tracing with her and they said, who did you come in contact with? Well, I worked with so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Well, did you wear a mask? Yes. Did they wear a mask? Yes. They're not considered exposures then. They will be contacted and, and they will be told you could have been exposed, but because they were wearing masks, they aren't necessarily quarantined. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. That's just another good reason to, to have Wear the mask. wearing masks. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And so then another question came in here. If we're out in public and we're walking past people and, you know, you're more than six feet apart or about six feet apart, is there really a concern? And uh, how important is that time limit exposure? The time limit exposure is kind of important because the longer that you're near someone, the more chance is. If you're just passing somebody in the hall, it's not a big deal. There's actually a sheet that the CDC put out and it says risk. And I think if you do anything outside there and you're kind of staying away from people, there's not that big of a risk. And I think that is all the questions that we had. Great questions from our, our members. And uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time to answer all of those. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Mike. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.